0: Lee grew up in the small town of Belleville in southern Illinois and fulfilled his childhood dream of flying commercial jet aircraft as his chosen career. After receiving a commercial license in 1969, he went on to complete six years' service as a naval aviator flying the P-3 Orion aircraft. He was subsequently hired as a pilot in 1978 by United Airlines. During the following years, he travelled through many periods of labour, management challenges including a furlough and bitter strike in 1985. He was a JFK-based United Airlines 777 captain during the September 11 attacks on the World Trade Center, and after the attacks and with United Airlines in bankruptcy, he attempted to speak out on alleged violations of federal aviation regulations and security frailties, as well as RICO ICO statutes. As a result of the issues raised, he was thus ejected from the United Airlines property on various charges, thus destroying a 35-year aviation career. He joins me today to talk to a life in service and the painful decisions taken in supporting passenger and staff security. Dan Hanley, welcome to you today. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio. And thank you, David, once again for allowing me to be on your program. You have had an amazing journey, Dan, I celebrate that journey with every sincerity. This is a tough road for all of us today in this world and I think that you, having met you, I'm astounded and impressed that you are so full of integrity and you are steering a course and remaining with your ethical position and I commend you for that. And I also thank you for coming so far to to be with me here in the studio. Let's start this off, if we may, by taking you back to your childhood. I'd love to know for our listeners where you come from.
1: Okay. Well, I grew up in a little city in southern Illinois right across the Mississippi from St. Louis Belleville, a population 50,000 back in the 50s, and it still is today. Uh, Nothing's much changed there. We had seven kids in our family. I was raised a Roman Catholic, went to Catholic grade schools and high schools. We had a rather austere lifestyle compared to most. My dad worked from a mobile oil refinery and provided for us as best he could, and um, I got like a lot of people, I had hand-me-down clothes, and uh, I worked, did a lot of chores around the house. So I think I learned to lear- work at the girlie on, uh, and also with my upbringing in Catholic schools. Uh.
0: Wh- when did yeah. you? become interested in aviation when when did, did <laughs> that happen during during your childhood days well,
1: very much so i i recall i went and got a cardboard box painted it black put a ruler in for the throttles i had christmas bulbs and a big alarm clock was my altimeter or whatever instrument that was and i'd line up chairs in my basement and have the kids sit there while i played captain i jumped off my dad's garage roof because i wanted to see what it felt like to fly i had a <laughs> former naval aviators that lived across the street turned barnstormer he used to barnstorm the house and an old steerman bl- biplane promised to take me up, but never did and he was an early inspiration to me, including my naval aviation career.
0: What about your mother and father? How did they look upon your your endeavors, your obvious uh, attraction to becoming an aviator? Well, I had a si- a old older sister that
1: went to work uh, with Delta Airlines, and I'd never been on vacations, but one, we pulled a trailer out to uh, Denver, Colorado, and I never was much out of the state of Illinois. And when I saw her traveling to all these places and said, this is what I want to do, and they really didn't have the financial support for me to do this. I set about figuring a way of doing it myself, so I worked through school, my dad co-signed for some loans, I paid them all back, Vietnam came along, and I didn't really have military plans, but I lucked out once in my life and pulled number two in the first lottery drawing, so I decided to go into naval aviation.
0: So you 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 went into aviation, what were you flying?
1: Well. The big push, because Vietnam was going on, was to be a fighter pilot and they tried to entice everybody to go that route. But I had my mind set on being a uh, commercial pilot, so in in naval aviation, going through school as any other branch of service, it's all dependent upon flight grades. So I worked real hard because I wanted to fly one of the few airplanes that didn't land on a big gray boat, which was a P3 Orion, and that's what I succeeded in doing.
0: What do you think that you learned in that period?
1: In the Navy as an officer? Yes. Something that's lacking in the business world today. I learned about honesty, courage, integrity, principled thinking, leadership by example. I had many people that inspired me leadership wise, and that's lacking in the business world today. It wasn't do what I tell you, it's look at what I'm doing. And that really carried on through my flying career, both in the Navy, where I had a crew of 12 people. I tried. The big thing they taught us was take care of your people, and they'll take care of you.
0: So and that must have been a great challenge. Was that a great challenge that you were provided immediately that on departure from the naval career? Was, was that something that became immediate to you, that you realized that those challenges were going to completely turn your your world upside down? Very
1: much so, because we weren't bottom-line oriented in, in naval aviation. We had a mission to do, and we had the full support of the front officer, commanding officer if you elected, you weren't going to take an airplane. He trusted your judgment and what you were doing. When I got into the airline industry, I saw how bottom line oriented it was and they treated employees like assets and you needed a union to protect you. If you wanted to speak out on issues, it was a whole different ball game.
0: What about when you were back in naval aviation? Describe to me the, the different world, the different America then that it is now. Well, we
1: all believed in our government and we all believed in our constitution and what we were doing and that we were defending our nation. And there was this camaraderie and esprit de corps in naval aviation that is sorely lacking out in the business world. We all work towards a common goal instead of us versus them. You have your front your frontline employees out there trying to do a good job and you have your corporate bean counters who know very little or care very little about commercial aviation safety or security after 9-11. they going to optimize shareholder return and it wasn't us versus them uh, work environment
0: I, I guess you know I mean come on let's face it we're, we're talking parallels in any business sector if you look at Hollywood and you look at uh, the ni- even the 1950s 60s there was still the creativity in Hollywood well now it's controlled by the bean counters so it's not as if it's exclusive to the aviation sector this is a global problem that we face right i agree i g- agree
1: 100 percent because i am dealing with other whistleblowers and in other industries uh, nationwide and globally actually
0: you uh, let's go straight to the point here in 2003 uh, you you came across this this situation on board uh, we've talked about it and uh, tell me a bit about that Particular ordeal, uh, the the situation that you were faced in. Before we go on to expand that into other areas and the aftermath of that. Okay, well, actually,
1: it started a few months after nine eleven. We all recognized that there were holes in the security system out there. We were all trying to keep the airline industry afloat. People were afraid to get on airplanes, so you didn't really want to go public with the information that you had, and you were relying on internal communication processes that existed before nine eleven to get the job done. And when uh, United Airlines filed for bankruptcy protection in, like, 2002, um, then we became not only at the mercy of the front office, but at the mercy of a federal bankruptcy judge who, in essence, was giving pretty much the banks and the company whatever they needed to stay afloat.
0: So you're, you're faced at this stage, then, with fear after 9-11, and then you are... Um, compounding that with the failure of United Airlines. Exactly. What what, what does that do for you as a a PIC in the pilot and command in the cockpit? I'm glad you brought that Uh, up. Yeah. (laughs) What does that do for you in terms of uh, communication, how how did you see you you're the captain with thirty five years of experience. How was it affecting the the co pilot next to you who who I'm sure on many legs would be inexperienced not only as a pilot but also in life. And how did you see it affect the people in the cabin? All the way around
1: there was fear for sure, especially right after nine eleven and the cabin crew, uh, we all worked together as a cohesive unit And it's the responsibility of a captain in the left seat to respond to crew concerns also. And that's really how my particular situation evolved or degenerated, I should say. Um, But that captain in the left seat, I mentioned this the last time I was on your program, he should be able to operate in a vacuum, unimpeded by any external legal, financial, or political pressures. And that was far from the case once we got into bankruptcy.
0: There was, if you look back at the 50s, the... The role of a captain was very different, was it not? It was still, it was it's still pretty much a, a dictatorial role in many ways. There, there wasn't the uh, communication uh, and the the strategies that you have in place now. And having been to to NATCO to Northwest, as we discussed, that is the whole push now is to have this communication so that the captain is not left on his own to make every decision. Is that the position that you took as captain to be very open? Uh, to be very communicative with all of your people on board? Yes, <clears throat> and not just with the people,
1: but with the my supervisors and, and union personnel. And you're right about the captain's authority. The regulation has never changed. The captain has absolute authority over whether or not he's going to release the brakes on that airplane for whatever reason. That hasn't changed. What changed was when uh, United Airlines had an accident with a DC-8 up in Portland, Oregon, years ago. They instituted a program called Command Leadership Resource Management where you brought in all available assets and information into the cockpit so the captain could make a sound decision. And that was in place, and the big important part of that program was communication, not just with the cabin crew or the, your, your co-pilots, but also with your dispatcher, maintenance, or anyone else that might be able to provide input.
0: What's the uh, psychological effects on your crew and on yourself when you're now going from an era pre-911 to having the cockpit door open to the families and the mums and the proud dads bringing their kids up to the cockpit and let's go and see the captain and and everything open to now after 9-11 being closed shop, not having contact, not having that social interaction with your passengers. Th- thats isn't
1: so, That wasn't so much important back then. Yes, they did lock us in a little room up in front of the airplane. and <clears throat> But I need to point out there, there were a lot of promises made right after 9-11, such as cameras in the back of the airplane so we could see. A secondary barrier and protections. I mentioned this on the last program. Federal air marshals, they even ran a suit TASER, but none of that occurred. TASER training, none of that occurred. So you still have the flight attendant sitting back in the back and if you're sitting in the left seat and you're half a captain, you're going to take care of your crew and your passengers as part of the Alp Airline Pilots Association Code of Ethics. First, It's the first paragraph. First and foremost, the safety of your passenger and crew is paramount. Okay, so that supersedes federal aviation regulations as far as a commercial airline pilot it exceeds federal bankruptcy law and that was one one of my points federal bankruptcy law doesn't trump federal aviation regulations or the alpa code of ethics when it comes to safe carriage of passengers and airplanes and
0: that isn't what was occurring so you're now fighting this enemy uh, a hidden enemy almost uh, that that took down the towers in new york you're now fighting um the huge pressure to stay in business and to make profit and 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 then I'm not necessarily saying that there's anything wrong with that because that's how uh, you you get you 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 make a living but on top of that you're fighting FAA you're fighting TSA you have uh, the con- the concerns of whether your flight is going to have air marshals on that flight You are being pressurized by management. And I'm sure that these are huge impacts on you, not only as a pilot, but also on you as a human being going home every day and having to worry about all of these factors.
1: Very much so. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It was a very delicate balancing act, especially when we got in bankruptcy, not wanting to bring these problems into the public domain because we were trying to get people back on airplanes, but you still had this obligation to passengers and crew. And when you had flight attendants, when I went back on breaks on the way to London who had lost friends in United Flight 93 out in Pennsylvania and were literally shaking, I don't want to say they were weak, but they were very sad about their friends and recognized the problems back there and said, can you say something, can you do something? And I said, I will. And just like the military has a chain of command, so too did United Airlines and I followed it to a T.
0: Did you have to become um, very sympathetic in this period very <laughs> to, much. to to these flight attendants? I mean, does how does that compromise the situation? Because you're having to be a captain, you're having to take care of your passengers, you have your own concerns of whether something nasty is going to happen on every flight for many, many months after 9-11 occurred. How does that shape you now? You have to change your mindset, do you not? Very, uh, again, uh,
1: going back up to the cockpit crew, we took, once we went into bankruptcy, I believe a, like a 30 or 40% pay cut, which was devastating. Imagine any any employee having being on a budget. And I remember a first officer coming up and plopping down the seat before we're going to London. And he says, I don't care anymore. And I said, well, for the next seven hours, you have to. <laughs> Okay, so it was this morale problem that we were having. And the fear they were facing after 9-11, plus the devastating financial impact that the bankruptcy had on people that was ruining morale. And I know crew morale is an essential part of safety. I'm, I know that you cannot be apathetic in aviation. i had been around too long. And that were those were the concerns. I, I said, if we have another major hull loss due to pilot apathy or pilot error, I even hate using that word, United will be out of business and so I was trying to keep the crew assured that I was going to take care of them as well as trying to somehow bolster morale in a very, very uh, depressing
0: situation. We're, we're going to move on very quickly because we have a lot to cover. The, the one question I want to ask you and I'm particularly interested in is you obviously live flying a plane. That's your life, your career, your passion from a from a child. Did that, uh, was that disturbed after nine eleven? Did it become less attractive for you with all of these huge concerns? It became a a,
1: a real serious concern, and um, we'll be talking, I guess, about where it went from here. But <clears throat> I really had to do a deep examination of conscience, and you talk to any whistleblower out there, you go through, I, I digress back through my childhood <laughs> thinking, what is right here? You know, I I had a family and I had overhead. I was experiencing these same problems, and you know, when I rounded the corner to walk in the airplane down the jetway, I had to shift gears
0: myself and put that behind me.
1: So, yeah, it was a uh, it was a very
0: trying time for everyone. I don't want to to spend too much time, Dan, on this because we we really want to examine, I guess, the aftermath right. of, of this situation. But in 2003, you essentially had an issue on board. Can you very briefly just indicate what occurred there?
1: I was over in London getting ready to go to Newark, and I had a British flight attendant crew, and we had a wheels-up time, so you're pushed for the clock to make your pushback time, and the agent checked with me, and I said, we're good to go, and the uh, purser, the head flight attendant came up in the cockpit and told me that we had to disrupt a passenger, and half the passengers wanted off the airplane, so... I told the co-pilot, to call ground control, we'll be right back. And I ran back to the middle door out in the jetway. There was a gentleman standing there, and he was very much shaken. And so I was trying to defuse the situation, assess his condition to determine whether or not we should bring him on board. When I had the flight attendants in the middle galley <laughs> waving to me, come on in, Dan. we got to tell you something. And uh, I walked in. They said, this man ran up... From the back a coach screaming, There's a bomb on this airplane, we're all gonna die and I went, Okay, we have an agent here trying to get this flight off the gate and she says, Half the people went off. I said, okay, I'll get the airplane reinspected. So I ran back out in the jetway and I said, "I'm sorry." sir, we're going to have par- paramedics come down here. I need the ground security coordinator down here. I'll take the delay. And I went back on and I made a PA announcement, apologized to people, saying, "We're going to have to deplane." Well, a lot of them thanked me when we walked. They walked out the door. You know, I said, "Safety and security is first and number one here at United Airlines." So uh, after that. While I was talking to the ground security coordinator out in the jetway, I had two supervisors walk by and say, I understand our flight attendants delayed this flight. And I went, what? And I walked back in the airplane and I saw them almost browbeating these flight attendants. And I pulled them aside, very congenial, and said, wait a minute, um, they're my eyes and ears back here. I don't have the cameras I was promised. I could have taken off of this guy on board the airplane, gotten over the North Atlantic, had to divert back into Shannon. I said, let me just ask you a hypothetical question here. After 9-11, I know that if any flight attendant or crew member didn't feel comfortable, they allowed them to be plane, and they still were paid for the trip, has that policy changed here? And I said, what if I said to you right now, I've talked to the ground security coordinator, put everybody back on board we're going to push back and you had a flight attendant that was afraid to get off the, uh, and wanted to get off the airplane based on what they saw but I didn't and the supervisor said well we give them a direct order to take the flight or they'd be terminated and I looked at the female supervisor and I said do you agree she goes of course it's in writing it's company policy
0: what is that indicative of though uh, you know we can all point fingers but if, have you considered th- why they took this action? I'm sure in your long career that you had been faced up to similar situations, maybe not as excessive as this. But why would it be that these two supervisors could take this position? Was it because uh, the, the PR value of this could not allow any incident? Uh, for United Airlines it, it could not allow any compromise and there was such pressure from management to get a plane off the blocks whatever it took It's a five letter word,
1: money the bottom line they uh, want to minimize uh, expense, max, optimize private profit, which any company wants to do, but then you've got to decide what the dividing line is between profits and safety. I, I would like to, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but right now I'll give you an example at United Airlines last year. Um, they sued the Airline Pilots Association and they fired four pilots because of a uh, contractually provided sick list they said they were abusing and there's still an ongoing program right now where they're going to bring people in and uh, question them as far as sick list usage it was a the judge ruled in favor of uh the company in that case and i'm not going to question the judgment of a federal judge but i will say that she isn't a pilot and she doesn't recognize the decisions that go on in that guy's head in the left seat and it is impinging on safety, and you could jump over to Colgan Air and the number of whistleblowers over there that were suppressed. Uh, FAA uh, <laughs> Air Carrier Inspector Chris Montelian, a friend of mine, it was in the New York Times, Matt Wall reported it, Barbara Hollingsworth, the Washington Re- Examiner, reporting to all the contributing factors that led up to that accident in, on February uh, 12th last year in Buffalo that killed 50 people. Uh, Gabe Bruno, the FAA Whistleblowers Alliance, uh, Jerry Shremsky, the Buffalo News and uh, Washington Bureau Chief in uh, Washington D.C. It was all out there. It was the CNN all, all the major uh, Fox News everybody was reporting it and yet what happened was the NTSB just recently ruled pilot error. So when you have a gun pointed at your head and you're trying to defend the public safety and security on board airplanes and it's all about economics, that's what's really going on out there right now.
0: Looking back, um, now I'm, I'm looking at a man here who clearly has the welfare of his passengers and crew at the top of the list. Would you say that in that immediate, immediate period, not, not the situation that unraveled itself afterwards, would you think that there was anything else that you could have done in that situation to defuse it?
1: I tried everything. I started out with my chief pilot, my union leader in in New York. I used all the normal communication process we had in place before 9-11.
0: So looking back now, your action essentially saved people's lives. Because had you taken off, there could have been a problem, Uh, and having been in this role before. I'm assuming that there would have been a fifty-fifty chance of having to divert anyway. Exactly. Spend an awful lot of money on gas and 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 have an extremely upset passenger list on your on on your mind. It, it so, was so happening. That, so that th- would so that would have been a worse scenario. It, it was happening.
1: I know a good friend of mine in uh, New York wound up diverting back to Shannon for that very reason over the North Atlantic. Uh, they had a note written on a mirror in one of the uh, restrooms on the airplane and they couldn't take chances. So uh, divert's a very expensive process and there's a lot and again, I need to emphasize this command leadership resource management program that emphasizes communication. That has to do with what goes on. Uh, You know, the cockpit the captain doesn't have just authority from the nose of the airplane back to the cockpit door. It's the whole airplane, and they have to receive input from their crew. And for me to observe the stifling, intimidating process where they were browbeating flight attendants, was on the, it violated every precept that that, that program teaches.
0: So essentially, uh, you come away from this. You clearly know that there's a problem here. You're, you're clearly instinctive. Your mind is telling, telling you that this isn't going to go away. Um, you have made the right decision. You've made the decision based upon years of experience, no doubt. It's something that you have to sit with, accept, take the consequences. My understanding, and I wanted to ask you, by the way, did, was there an air marshal on this particular flight? That was one of my complaints, and that was the complaints I was receiving from the cabin.
1: I flew mostly New York to London for the two years following nine eleven, and I didn't have a single air marshal on board
0: were you actually advised when there would be Oh you yeah, know I don't board? want to go into
1: details on that because there's but yes you you so knew you would and, know. and you knew in advance and so, you so actually talked
0: to their supervisor so th- uh, this again is uh, all I'm doing with this is I'm Pointing out that this is an extra stress on you because you don't have an air marshal to take up the challenge with you on this particular incident, or any so of those safety precautions. So I had. If I had a camera, I would have seen what was going on. So, there. so now it really does rest with you completely. Um, let's let's move on here. You you go through this dreadful time. Um, you are clearly very compromised with this. Um, very briefly what occurred in the in the next two years you continue flying right what are the indications to you what is occurring that you already know that you're in a problem here well
1: everything i was saying you'd get with pilots on layovers and they they agreed but i was getting warnings from my uh, chief pilot and my union leader in new york keep your head down these guys are nasty if you take it to the next level, you're going to get hurt. So uh, the resistance, that was it. And you talked to a lot of whistleblowers, what you think is going to work as a communication process. Uh, a case in point, uh, there's a report called a captain's report. It's entirely internal within the company. No one outside sees it. And after multiple face-to-face phone conversations, telephone calls, emails, letter writing to union leaders and company people, I filed this captain's report and I got a call from my union leader and he said to me, we've got this report that you're complaining that your communications are being stifled. And I said, well, they are. And I wanted it addressed within the company. He said, well, I talked to company managers and they think you're a big mouth, loose cannon, whistleblower, and they want you to keep
0: quiet. Now, now in this time, are there other incidents happening that are similar? Yes. Now, have you ever... Said to yourself, why is it that I am being signalled out here? Is it is the difference here that that you're continuing with this issue, and the captains uh, and these other individuals in these uh, involved in these other incidents are thinking, hang on a minute here, maybe I should just stay very quiet and accept the pressure here except the fact that I'm up against my role as a captain but I'm also up against the corporate mansion to make profit so I'm I'm just gonna drop it and just forget about it that that's the difference
1: that that is the problem with whistleblowing is a chilling signal it sends to other employees when they see something happen like it did to me but it was all financial it was all the very fact that we were being beat to death but as you, employees and the union by, in bankruptcy, that they were more concerned about the financial survival of the company than what the requirements of their job were as a captain or... Uh,
0: what, what about your relationship or your, your acknowledgement to anybody else faced with a similar situation who did not take your direction and continue with it on an ethical, professional basis but decided to let it go how did you feel about them did you uh, push up against that did you have any resentment or that or accept the fears and accept the the human being as taking a decision of I'm not built to be able to oppose this I don't have the courage to be able to oppose this at that stage could you accept that without resentment without uh, a sense of betrayal it was
1: sadness
0: actually um,
1: and I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal as being noble or doing something outside the norm here. But the tragedy for me was the betrayal and denial, especially as we went down this road. Guys that were my friends, some guys privately encouraging me, and people turning a blind eye as I was let out the door. I really... F- that, that, well, that's happened <laughs> for the last several years. People who you thought you could trust... Turn their back on you or abandon you or vaporizing it then air and left you hanging out there and including my own federal government.
0: <laughs> Let me ask you we now have a clear picture of what occurred. What happened after that? Now you're flying for a couple of years. You must be carrying this burden with you every day, wondering who you're going to hear from next. But you are taking the position of courage. You are staying within your, your ethical position following the wisdom that you gained in the naval aviation world that you brought with you to commercial aviation. So you're holding your ground. How was it to change now over the next two years up to the point where they say, Captain Hanley, you're taken off the line? Because
1: all of my efforts had failed, and I foolishly believed that I, if I sustained the legal, ethical, moral high ground, that it would be unimpeachable. I wouldn't be, would be, I'd be unassailable. Um, and I followed protocol as far as my communications. I was going to write a letter to the CEO of United Airlines, uh, explaining that the financial pressures of uh, bankruptcy were impinging upon the ability of captains to function but more importantly the Union to represent their interests, and I was told not to send the letter in or I would never fly another United airplane in my, again in my life.
0: Now, it, 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 so there is uh, posing then another problem, that surely uh, the Union is supposed to support you up to the hilt. Exactly, a, that was, that was a, my as problem. As a crew member, so um, <laughs> what, what is that indicative of here? Well, that,
1: that's what I was trying to discern, who's on which side and who's who's a team player here and it wasn't until i filed a flight safety awareness report which brought the faa into it that's what took me out of schedule because i had alleged uh violations of rico law and a few pieces of correspondence and since then various groups have proven that we we can get into that in a minute but um it wasn't just based on my uh perception of what's occurring it's what i was being told behind the scenes so when i filed that Flight safety there's a series of flight safety awareness reports, and incidentally, if I can mention my website we 've got a grassroots uh, organization called the whistleblowing airline employees association uh, it 's got a lot of information on there that not just with my case but with the current ongoing S e c investigation of united airlines um, but when I got pulled out of schedule, the union number one they didn 't represent me legally Number two, the company I tried to arrange meetings with uh uh, United Legal. They wouldn't allow me to bring in my own attorneys. So I was at an impasse <coughs> because they'd pulled me out of schedule. The chief flight surgeon at United Airlines ordered my chief pilot to take me out of schedule without a single physician ever even talking to me. Okay, he called me up and apologized. said, I'm sorry, my hands are tied on this one. So I was running out of sick list. And I was going to go non-pay and I felt like uh, this was punitive. And this
0: what, what happened then with your colleagues were you beginning to see a change in their demeanor that you flew with were they beginning to isolate themselves from you just for their own protection which is no vindication or i'm not suggesting anything about them as human beings but were you beginning to feel that isolation Uh, i just feel it i was told
1: i got calls i had friends both on the union and on the company side that said we've been told to shut down all communications with Dan Hanley for legal reasons.
0: Now, you continue flying for this two years and we're going to move on, but you continue flying. Do you enjoy flying as much in that two years up to the point of being taken offline? <laughs> it's probably the most nightmarish two
1: years of my 35 years of flying. But when you
0: continue it? it. Oh, I did. You continue did. your job.
1: I never, I never dreamed that if I followed federal aviation regulations and abided by the Elpa Code of Ethics, that the outcome would be as such. Even though I had seen this several times in the past where they pulled guys off, ran them through either a shrink or a medical pull. You're required to, to have two pieces of paper in your wallet, your license and your medical certificate, and they're both issued by the federal government. If you lose your medical, that other piece of paper is useless. And it's called a nuclear device amongst airline pilots because that's their last option. They'll They'll yank the pilot's ticket, and you're finished.
0: Very briefly, you are now taken offline. Uh, clearly, your, the concerns that you are presenting, the, the numerous documents that you are providing to many agencies at this stage, including your chief pilot, the unions, the FAA, it is now getting to a, uh, a pivotal point. You are taken offline. What occurs uh, personally with your family? How does that affect your family? I don't like to bring them into it. It was
1: devastating just like every other you you can talk about federal or marshal Robert McLean I don't want to get into his personal issues, but yeah every every whistleblower out there you're making a very difficult decision regarding your career and the welfare of your family and uh, You know I want to interject this point. I mentioned it before uh, it has a devastating financial impact on you, your personal family, your career, and your reputation. Uh, you expect that you have uh, regulations and laws to support you, but more importantly, institutions, a government to protect you, and when you step out there and find out you have neither, it's a very lonely feeling. But the worst part of it is the chilling impact it has on your fellow employees who might think about talking out, but look at what happened to you, and they're going to turn a blind eye.
0: Towards safety or security that's totally unsatisfactory in commercial aviation, but nevertheless you don't have any resentment against them You you don't hold grudges against these these other people. None of this is about or for me
1: Okay, Uh, I I don't have a personal vendetta uh, where things have gone since uh, 2003 where we've affiliated with other whistleblowers. We recognize we have a major problem in this country because if you're a federal whistleblower, you only have a 2% probability of success. Like Robert McLean, the fired federal air marshal, said he he spent over $100,000 on legal fees. He would have done better going and playing the uh, tables at Las Vegas because here he is still out of a job. He's, uh, it's devastated his family, finances. It's wrong. And there's legislation coming down through Congress where we're trying to get jury trials for federal workers, so they at least get a
0: discovery phase where they can bring this information out. The um, the time comes, you you come offline, and you must be impacted so deeply. You are now facing up to possibly never flying again. At that very minute, or in this time. What is your mindset? What are you thinking? How determined are you? I was trying to strike deals to avoid this. I didn't want it on the public
1: domain. They were threatening to pull the plug on Chapter Seven liquidation of United Airlines. I always said that if I did, it did get out in the media, and they did that, I wouldn't have to worry about my career because I'd have 150,000 global employees of United Airlines beat me to death for doing it. So I was trying to balance things. I was calling. Uh, Uh, Union lawyers. I was calling a company lawyer saying look I'm willing to meet I want to compromise on this But I'm at an impasse. I was between a rock and a hard spot as a pilot
0: What was the response with the FAA? Uh, The FAA my understanding the same as the CAA in Europe is a regulatory body Uh, Would they not support your actions? That is
1: part of the problem. Every airline in the United States has an FAA principal operation inspector that oversees the whole operation. And uh, because he was part of the three-man committee that looked into these uh, reports, he turned a blind eye because what I was reporting back in 2003 was exactly contributory to the Colgan Air incident, which I tried to testify before last June, and they would only allow me to submit an affidavit. That is the problem. It's still going on today. So I filed a Federal Aviation Administration Whistleblower Protection Report in 2006. They lost the first one, so I refiled it with the affidavit I'd submitted to Senator Dorgan's committee for the Colgan Air hearing. And just about a month or so ago, the Department of Transportation Inspector General said I didn't follow the administrative requirements that required me to within 60 days report to Department of Labor, OSHA, to get my job back. And I explained to them very calmly that I wasn't trying to get my job back. I was trying to point out, so I just refiled last week. But the uh, report I filed last week also includes uh, some of the issues that the Security and Exchange Commission is investigating. So I'm hopeful that the uh, Department of Justice will get involved in this as well, because not only does it involve uh, bankruptcy, p- alleged bankruptcy pension, security fraud, purported judicial corruption the united bankruptcy it's how that pressure impinges upon pilots out there and it's still ongoing right now
0: what is the situation with united now uh, they they went travel through this bankruptcy um, what is the situation at the moment with the pension plan
1: we still do not have a pension but just yesterday uh, one of the uh, union councils uh, introduced a resolution. As you know, uh, if the Continental United Airlines merger occurs, that will be the largest air carrier in the world, and they're part of the Star Alliance, which is about 22 global carriers. Uh, and they're stating right now that they will not have come to any kind of a re- merger agreement with the company because Continental still maintain their defined benefit pension plan. They're saying as part of the merger agreement, we need our pensions back, and we you're financially helpful enough to do that
0: but is that a reality now uh, well, given the, given the economy can they really expect to get the pensions back they they must their well, thank their, you for their, their, their coffers must be empty at this stage the but airlines are struggling so how how is that going to occur it's exactly what the uh, SEC sh- is investigating right now, because you have to jump
1: back to right after 9-11, the Airline Transportation Stabilization Act was passed. They allotted a total of $10 billion for all the financially distressed carriers, and of that, only $1.2 billion was let. United Airlines didn't get a cent, and this is part of our allegations in this SEC filing, that they redacted documents. They did not do a RISA-mandated uh, study of the h- financial health of United Airlines. And there's a lot of allegations, and it's on that website I mentioned, www.airline-whistleblowers.org. If you go in there and look, Senator Akaka, uh, his staff is investigating this. There's a number of congressional leaders. As a matter of fact, every relevant congressional committee chair is aware of this, and they have been since 2007. So we're hopeful because that money was not led. It is it is doable. The, yeah, where, the alleg- where is the money held at the moment, well, one of the most serious—it was actually in a Motley Fool. Uh, Rich Duprey wrote about it in uh, late 2007, uh, where he was alleging that the United's luc- uh, valuable mileage plus asset was somehow hidden during the bankruptcy process. So the reality is, they never really needed to terminate them anyhow, the pensions anyhow. That they used the protection of bankruptcy court to do it, and if you look at the the bonuses that were awarded to the top uh, 400 corporate managers at United Airlines coming, it's obscene because all through the process they were saying, this is a shared sacrifice by both management and the employees, and then rewarded themselves. And they're doing it on
0: this merger. And now is that still continuing today? Of course, the 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 bonus,
1: if you look, there was an article, I believe it was the Chicago Tribune a couple weeks ago, and it was leaked how much money these same corporate managers that did that back in the bankruptcy are going to we- uh, yield from this uh, the merger agreement and yet they're still standing there demanding uh, concessions and that's why the union's stepping forward saying wait a minute you're a helpful enterprise now we gave back then you didn't and now you're going to take more in bonuses while well, we're supposed to sit here and be except the fact that perhaps our pensions were illegally
0: taken from us in bankruptcy we have 15 minutes left okay the Sarbanes-Oxley Uh, Can you give uh, our listeners some some, uh, visibility on that?
1: Sure. Sarbanes-Oxley was passed right after Bush got Mm -hmm. in uh, office, uh, after the Enron, Tycho, WorldCom, many of these white-collar criminals that wound up going to prison. And it was supposed to be the most sweeping reform in American business practices since the days of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I believe the ink was still wet on President Bush's signature when they uh, came in with something called a Deferred Prosecution Agreement, which came up in this UBS scandal with Bradley Birkenfield, who incidentally is in prison right now as a federal whistleblower for stepping forth and identifying problems over there. But basically, Sarbanes-Oxley is supposed to protect someone like us, me, that sees corporate fraud and reports it to appropriate authority. Well, I filed in 2007 with uh, SEC Chairman Cox, and I received a letter about three months later from their senior consul uh, at Julia Gardner at the SEC thanking me for my views after I gave them the most incriminating information that exposed me to a lot of danger for doing it, but I was really representing the interest of a lot of people that were bringing information forward. I was just a public spokesperson.
0: So you're, you're making yet another profound decision here. I was you're, horrible. You're, you're, you're was almost... You're almost up to your neck in this um, uh, without wanting to be but you are and now you're taking this next step and you're looking at the corporate mansion you're looking at united i guess and you're seeing the bigger picture you're seeing this corruption exactly Um, so now where is that placing you now today in your role uh, as as not being in any way resentful or, or 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 trying to point fingers, but what are you trying to do today to be able to give everybody out there more visibility about this dreadful situation that we have, not only in the airline business but but in any sector?
1: Well. Uh, you'd have to go back to how this whole Whistleblowing Airline Employees Association evolved. It started out as a group of uh, United Pilots, and it expanded to other airlines, and it's all grassroots, and I volunteered to serve as a public spokesperson because I was already out there. And as a result of that, we affiliated with like the FAA Whistleblower Alliance, the Federal Air Marshals, Kate Hanai at flyersright.org, uh, global organizations over in England, not in Australia, and we all start crosstalking, and uh, there's a, a huge, huge network of whistleblowers out there. It's almost like an underground. We're exchanging information on what works, what doesn't. We're using the internet, email, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, LinkedIn, any communication medium we can get to try to get it to the public attention to make them aware.
0: I, I'm interested. Do you think that there's going to be some stage here where this whistleblowers label is going to be eradicated and you're you're going to become more of an advocate for simply for truth and basically eliminating the business practices that the huge need to make so much money even when you're putting in this case passengers at risk that surely is going to over time here change your role as it will change many people's role to 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 my mind to to actually getting rid of this dreadful label I'm glad you said
1: that because it does have a stigma associated. I've been called a fink. Bob McLean's been called a rat. The reality is uh, Gandhi was a whistleblower. He was pretty effective. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> anyhow, yes, this is the problem in this country. With things like deferred prosecution agreements that Eric of the New York Times, and Washington exposed with the Department of Justice where these white-collar criminals get all scot-free and they just say, we're going to go in and correct the problem in the company, it renders the Sarbanes-Oxley Act moot. It's not worth the paper it's written on. And when you compound that with the 2% success rate with uh, federal whistleblowers, uh, you don't stand a chance. And people sit out there and say, why would I dare speak out? And that is a problem. These white-collar criminals out there know they can get away with it. The system's rigged. They don't want these whistleblower laws changed. H.R. 1507, the Whistleblower Protection Act in the House, it's passed with jury trials. The Senate's fighting. They want to sustain the status quo. That's why you have the AIGs, the Goldman Sachs. That's why you have all these problems out there because, you know what, Eric Holder said— uh, we become a nation of cowards, but he was saying that in a racial context. then we become a nation of cowards in many ways. People are afraid to speak out. They see it wrong, and they won't. They won't say a word because they see they don't. It's survival. It's primal. It's instinctive. They don't want. they, they they're happy. Leave me
0: alone. But you know, as with everything in this world, and history shows us this you have the roman empire the the greek empire the british empire and all every other empire you always see a great growth you always see this amazing dynamic but at the end of it you always see the end of it because it implodes on itself and l- almost like politics it reverses direction and it and you actually finish up with a situation that is completely 180 degrees to where you are today And Let's take this assumption, and and actually I don't see this as an assumption, I think this is what's going to happen, uh, simply because of where we are in the world. Let's look at this and say that this is going to reverse. Now, you are going to get into a situation where you are going to, you don't want to rule, you don't want to have the power, but you do want safety. You do want to have the traditional founding fathers' principles restored to this country. Now, that's going to put you into a position of really becoming an ambassador and a leader at some stage here when people awake to these Paradigms.
1: I want to scream, wake up America. We still have a constitution. We still have First Amendment freedom of speech rights. And the last time I checked, I think our national motto was, in God we trust. I just embrace those uh, principles and values you know, that are fundamental to our government and believed in a system that I thought existed and it's failed me and many other whistleblowers out there miserably.
0: It's got to be changed. Do you think with the airlines industry, going off at a tangent for one minute, mm-hmm. if you look at United, uh, you look at the p of British Airways, it, it's pretty dire. It's a, a weak business model now. Um, do you think that they are... In themselves, going to implode to the point where they, they cannot afford oil, they cannot afford the administration, they cannot afford to run as they have done in the past, and that in itself may change the whole paradigm
1: look at it macrocosmically what happened back in the 80s with the regulation and the (laughs) consolidation of the u.s industry is occurring on a global scale which from a from a businessman's perspective you know you want to run the most efficient operation that you can and these the code share that they have with airlines you know it's just one paint job away from having four global air carriers and using uh uh central uh, reservations maintenance baggage handling whatever. That, that sounds great, but what they're doing with the cockpit crew, actually it's, you know, your flying's going to go once, once they open the floodgates, because the US mar- travel market's the most lucrative market in the entire world, okay, once they allow foreign carriers to uh, gain ownership of US carriers and they allow foreign, right now foreign carriers can only come into and out of a gateway city, mm. once they allow whatever airline to fly to and through the United States and the paint job comes down to four schemes, then you're going to have the bidding going on and it's going to be the ratcheting action downward just like we saw in the 80s domestically here in the United States is going to on a global basis, and our concern there is what level of safety, what standard of safety given what happened last February 12th in Buffalo, what are we going to adhere to, and how much power is that guy in the left seat going to have as far as captain's authority with the tremendous pressures being exerted globally by very low-cost carriers abroad?
0: I'm very interested, uh, not only in our notes, but also your website, and actually quite profoundly so. You have some quotations from some amazing people. One of them, Dan John F. Kennedy, Let us go forth and lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth God's work must truly be our own. And I I believe that's the one. And you also came up with, uh, When even one American who has done nothing wrong is forced by fear to shut his mind and close his mouth, then all Americans are in peril you obviously find those statements very important and uh, a, a very important mantra that you live your life by. Oh,
1: several of the quotes you see on our website uh, are very relevant to uh, my action. The first quote was Kennedy's from his inaugural address. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just a little boy from Belleville, Illinois, and I'm certainly not brave. So I had to draw on something beyond myself to uh move forward here so you know we're all spiritual beings and a lot of people don't recognize that and the second one uh... is from harry truman who incidentally also said the buck stops here and president obama has been apprised of our situation uh, on a number of letters you'll see on the website there and with his promise of a greater openness of government and enhanced protection for federal whistleblowers with this critical legislation coming down the pike we're hopeful that he'll address issues like a Robert McLean His his friends over at Federal Air marshals was a Gabe Bruno at the FAA whistleblowers Alliance and his crew our crew over here And recognize that we, we care more about safety and security of passengers than we do bottom-line profits
0: Tell me very shortly in the last couple of minutes of the program if you would What you would like to do personally in your life now? Uh, how would you like to affect change? how do you intend to continue this Uh, to a successful conclusion where you can see profound changes in the system? I'm pretty much keeping on the track. You know, there's a lot of other people out
1: there that are trying to have their voice heard, that have the same message that I do, that something's gone terribly wrong in this country, that there's pressures out there that no matter how loud you scream, The mainstream media ignores you. Your own government ignores you even though you're following regulations. So unless people start taking the personal initiative like John Perkins said in his book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman, you have to look around you and say, okay, what can I do to affect change? Don't look for others to lead and become a leader yourself. Do whatever you need to do. If we can send kids off to fight wars that a lot of people in this country don't want and then turn them blind and eye to what's going on there. We have domestic enemies amongst us, and I took the same oath of office as an officer to support and defend the Constitution. In the United States can solve enemies, foreign and domestic. We've got some domestic enemies in this country, and we need to look at who they are and how they're circumventing federal laws and looking at who the regulators are that should do their jobs instead of succumbing to wall street in case deep treat pressures and then each of us speak out you know be you know don't be a nation of cowards here the world's looking for us the bright shining beacon on the hill for others to emulate and really i feel
0: personally that we've become a global disgrace but there is nevertheless opportunity out of this for to us not only to change this country but to change the world for the sake of our children I owe it to him. I've apologized. I've got a son, 28, and a
1: daughter, 22. And I said, I'm sorry. I left you with this mess. And I certainly didn't expect to be doing this at 61 years of age. But I'm going to do my part in my little corner of the world, and others are
0: too, to try to help rectify and get us back where we were. 30 seconds. Your favorite memory when you were a child that you would like to see children have as well? (laughs) That would be going to an ice cream shop with my parents. I
1: still like it. But, uh... Back in Beaver Cleaverville, <laughs> in Belleville, when life was simple, you know, when, around the time uh, Eisenhower was warning us about the coming military-industrial complex, you know, uh, we were living through the Cold War and hiding under it. The worst memories was doing the air, <laughs> air raid drills under the desk in uh, grade school. But a simpler life, a more honest government, having respect for your, uh, not respect, admiration for your country. I've seen some things, as everybody else has the last several years, and we're going, where are we going here? It's our government, not theirs. It's not K Street, it's not Wall Street, the 535 members of Congress and the cabinet. They don't own it. They're public servants. We are, we're the ones that pay, little people pay taxes in this country, but we expect big government to do what they're supposed to do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you.
0: Are you confident about the future, then?
1: Yes, because there's still enough of us out here willing to do what you're doing and Bob McLean or Gabe Bruner or any of the other people are doing. I just
0: wish that the nation would regain the spine we once had. I'm sure it will. Captain Dan Hanley, it has been a real pleasure today and it has been a pleasure meeting you. And uh, I propose to you that you will be successful uh, in your work ahead. Thank you very much for being here. I'm honored to be on your program, given your guests, David. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And uh, to our listeners, thank you also for being on this road today. I appreciate it, and I hope that you follow Dan Hanley. He is a true gentleman, and I have met him, and I'm wishing him the very best and will certainly be following him. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. <music>